Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. It's Friday, August 5th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, let's talk about your brain on horror movies. Plus, Mark Cuban wants to turn a Texas town into Jurassic Park. And a virtual map that lets you see what your town looked like millions of years ago. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Between summer blockbuster releases and the impending start of Halloween season, pumpkin-shaped candy was already on the shelves when I went grocery shopping yesterday, we are in prime time for new horror films. Whether you've just seen Jordan Peele's Nope or are gearing up for Halloween Ends in October, perhaps you'd like a peek beneath your own skull at just what is happening in your brain and your body when you watch horror movies. Or, if you've never been a scary movie person, maybe knowing a bit more of the science behind your reactions will help you be able to distance yourself from the terror on the screen. In the same way that I've previously reported on the hack of reading the Wikipedia summaries of scary movies before watching them so you can relieve yourself of any jump-scare-like moments and just enjoy the film for its other merits. It's a spicy take, I know, but it works for a very specific type of person. In any case, Crime Reads yesterday published an excerpt from Nina Nezeth's book Nightmare Fuel, The Science of Horror Films, which came out just last week, and I wanted to share some of the key takeaways from this long read. So most of what Nezeth covers in this excerpt is straight up about fear, like real-life fears, how our brain operates when faced with threats. That's because our brains respond to threats portrayed on screen pretty similarly to how they do in real life. Quoting Nezeth, From the very start of a scene in a horror movie, your brain is telling you that a threat might be present. Even if you logically know that you're just watching a movie, your body is preparing for that threat, you know, just in case it's real. As a viewer with your butt safely in a seat and outside of the action on screen, you can recognize a scary situation and build up your own anticipation, which is half the fun of watching horror. End quote. And filmmakers know this. The best ones do, anyhow. Horror writers and filmmakers have figured out all sorts of storytelling and production techniques to hit on the best brain responses from their audiences, to the point that many of them have now become recognizable tropes. That's part of why Nezeth says watching a movie, especially a horror movie, is never a brainless activity. It, in fact, does the exact opposite of turning off your brain. It's super involved in processing and reacting to the story and images in front of you. And to narrow it back down to horror, Nezeth says there are two distinct elements of any horror film, terror and horror. Riffing and expanding on definitions from gothic fiction pioneer Anne Radcliffe, Nezeth makes a distinction between terror and horror. So terror, which Nezeth puts under a larger umbrella of fear, is basically anything that comes before horror. 
horror is our reaction to an actual bad event. Quote, terror is where tension lives. It's that awful, creepy, crawly feeling, the anxiety and anticipation that builds toward a horrifying event or realization. Basically, it's the heebie-jeebies. Horror is how we react once that event actually occurs. We experience fear all the time as a mechanism to protect us from a bad thing that might happen. Horror is the result of the bad thing happening. End quote. Now, I would be tempted to say personally that some horror films fall more into terror or fear, and some fall more into horror. Like, there are tons of movies where you're not even quite sure what the monster or the threat is, and you spend the whole movie with characters peeking around corners to dramatic music. On the flip side, there are movies that pretty much tell you what you're getting in for, creature features or slashers, and the shock in those is seeing the graphic horror portrayed on screen and reacting to it. But let's stick to terror slash fear for now. Fear can be good. If you're scared of something, you're more likely to prepare for it, to problem solve. It's kind of in the same category as being nervous before a big task. If you've got a healthy amount of nerves, you'll probably spend a little time thinking through various outcomes and preparing for them. And as we know, a number of fears evolved over time and have stuck with us as a species. Most humans have a natural fear of the dark, or at least some kind of residual foreboding in darkness, which goes back to the days when we didn't have so many protections against predators like large wild cats. They mostly came out at night, when we had more trouble seeing. Being scared of what would happen if we ventured out into the dark kept us safe, and those who didn't fear the dark were more likely to go out and be killed by predators. Research done by Sandra Soros at the University of Aviero has found that even infants were able to recognize snakes more readily than flowers when images of different objects were flashed in front of them very quickly, emphasizing how we as a species have evolved to have certain fears. Now, again, horror filmmakers play on this, Nesseth says. Movies are usually in darker tones, if not set entirely at night. They feature snakes and spiders and all manner of creepy crawlies. The imagery is setting the tone for you to already be uneasy, thanks to your evolutionarily inherited fears. But crucially, for a movie, it's all in your head. Mostly, to be specific, in your limbic system. Your amygdala is hypersensitive to anything novel being presented in front of you, or especially in your peripherals. It stores and processes fear-related information and memories, and it's helped along by the hippocampus, which retrieves those memories and gives context to the presented threat. And then the hypothalamus links your brain to your hormones, triggering all of the bodily responses to come if your brain decides it's time to be scared. Now, there are many other parts of the brain and body at play as well, but those are some of the major players involved in the defense cascade model. The defense cascade model is the set of possible responses a person may have to a threat. We most often hear about fight or flight, but Nezeth says there's not just fight or flight, there's also freeze, fright, and friend. Now, freeze is fairly self-explanatory. That's when you're just totally immobilized with fear. Fright refers to kind of playing possum, like pretending to be dead or unaware of a situation. Friend is sometimes also called flirt or fawn, and this is in which you try to engage with the threat or de-escalate the situation. This is also the outlier that's not always included in the official defense cascade model. 
Nezith points out that all of these are frequently at play in character responses in horror movies, sometimes coming off as tropes or annoying audience members who see these reactions as senseless, but in a good movie, they're all based on real, natural brain and bodily responses. So let's dig in a little more to each of them. Freezing, or attentive immobility. Sometimes freezing is a helpful thing to do in response to a threat, like if you were to encounter a Jurassic Park-style T-Rex, although not a real one because Crichton and Spielberg basically invented that for the story. Real T-Rexes most likely had decent binocular vision, so freezing would not have helped you out. But in a different way, it maybe could, in the way that it's helpful to anyone. See, when you freeze in response to a threat, it is effectively giving you a moment to assess the situation, figure out what is actually happening, survey your resources, and decide on a plan of action. This works better if you happened to freeze somewhere out of sight, but the basic concept is there. It only fails if you freeze so intensely that you flip into hypervigilance, where you're looking around at everything in a fast, chaotic manner and you aren't able to think clearly about what to do. But if you do figure out what to do, you might choose to stay and fight. Fighting happens when you know there's a threat. Now, at this point, a lot of cool brain and hormone stuff happens. The amygdala triggers the hypothalamus to flood chemicals and hormones through your body, significantly epinephrine and norepinephrine. These get your heart pumping and prepare your muscles for action by directing blood towards them and away from less necessary parts of your body for the fight. Next comes the release of the stress hormone cortisol, which also diminishes bodily functions you won't need, like digesting, and instead gives you a good surge of energy and keeps you on high alert. And once the fight is over, your parasympathetic nervous system kicks into gear to put everything back in order and help you recharge. This is when you'll suddenly feel hungry and in need of a good rest. But sometimes you know you can't take on the threat and that is when you choose flight. A lot of the same brain chemical hormone stuff that happened in fight happens for flight too. Your body and muscles need to be in good shape to carry you as far away from the threat as possible, as quickly as possible. And while the fight and flight responses give you a boost of adrenaline, dull some of the strain or pain that you might usually feel, and give you better eyesight from pupil dilation, they don't lead to superpowers. So when we see characters running for miles on end in horror films, that's probably not possible for the majority of us non-Olympic runners out there. You will probably be able to run longer and faster than typical, but just how long or how fast that is will vary from person to person, and you will eventually reach the point of physical exhaustion. But let's move on to fright, which I briefly described as like playing possum, but a true fright response, or sometimes called tonic immobility, is not a voluntary response. As Nezith puts it, quote, where freezing is an initial response that can help you stay unnoticed and plan an escape when a threat is detected, tonic immobility is more likely to occur once an attack is already underway and your senses are overwhelmed with fear. End quote. Your parasympathetic nervous system kicks into overdrive. Your heart rate slows down. You're still conscious, but you can't move, speak, or feel pain. It's like a body's last-ditch emergency response. And while this has been observed and reported in both animals and humans, there isn't much data on it because it's, understandably, a very difficult response to study in a clinical setting. The evolutionary basis for this one is kind of fascinating, too, though. See, a lot of predators only eat moving prey. 
because if their prey is not moving, it's assumed to be dead, and therefore perhaps inedible, because you don't know how long it's been dead for. So playing dead makes sense in response to some predators, and I guess over time, it evolved as an extreme response, not just in us humans, but in many other animals as well. Now, the friend or fawn or flirting response, by contrast, isn't always included in the overall defense fear cascade model, because rather than being an automatic response to a threat, as it says, it is a learned behavior, and very context-specific, and almost always human. The threat has to be one that can be appeased or bargained with. So this often manifests in longer-term situations, like kidnappings and abuse, not so much in the heat of the moment. But with all of these fascinating automatic and adapted reactions that humans have, Nezeth concludes, quote, It's amazing to think that humans have such varied built-in systems for dealing with threats, and that this variety gets put to such good use in horror movies. Things get even more interesting when on-screen threats cross the liminal space between film and viewer to trigger these built-in threat responses in the audience. End quote. Right. These are all true and real responses we humans have to real and perceived threats, and they've been interpreted to great effect by horror filmmakers over the generations in order to make us feel all the same things just by watching their movies. And these actual responses that we experience when we watch horror might have something to do with the increasing number of studies showing that regular viewers of horror movies are better equipped to handle times of stress and uncertainty, like the start of the pandemic. Maybe their brain is a little more used to going through the defense cascade model, and by encountering fear more often, even in imaginary simulated settings, they're given more opportunities to think through how they would respond tactically. It goes back to the whole fear and nerves thing. The more you feel it, the more you're likely to prepare so you can avoid the big bad. In an appearance earlier this year on The Drew Barrymore Show, which has resurfaced online after a rerun of it last week, Mark Cuban told Barrymore that he wants to turn a town he bought just south of Dallas, Texas, into a real-world Jurassic Park. Mark, my man, please stick to all the lives that you are saving with your new prescription company. Don't start killing us with dinosaurs. We know how this goes. But in all seriousness, the billionaire would be sticking to animatronics, specifically life-sized animatronics made by Don Lessum, a consultant on the Jurassic Park movies whose Dino Don company Cuban invested in after its appearance on Shark Tank. Cuban bought Mustang, Texas in December of 2021, reportedly as a favor to a friend who had been trying to sell it. The veritable ghost town is in Navarro County, not far from where the Netflix series Cheer takes place. It's also only about a 90-minute drive from Glen Rose, the long-dubbed dinosaur capital of Texas and home to Dinosaur Valley State Park. Now, while Mustang's animatronics might upstage the decades-old, unmoving, life-size dino statues on display at Dinosaur Valley State Park, Glenrose still has something Mustang doesn't. Actual dinosaur tracks, the main attraction of the site. Texas is big dinosaur country, with tons of fossils and tracks having been discovered over the decades. In fact, the skull and large sections of a skeleton of a 30-foot-long marine lizard called a mosasaur were unearthed in Dallas just last month. 
So on the one hand, dinosaurs are kind of old hat in Texas, but on the other hand, it's exactly the right place to start a big old dino theme park, given the regional pride and enthusiasm. Cuban also told Barrymore that if he goes for the animatronic park plan, he wants to change the name of the town from Mustang to Dinosaur, though he admits that one's a long shot. Dinosaur, Texas. I mean, it's definitely not the worst thing a billionaire is currently doing to a small town in Texas. I'd visit once it's up and running. Well, if Mark Cuban wanted to get super accurate and see what Mustang, or sorry, Dinosaur Texas looked like during the Jurassic period, he could use a helpful little site called the Ancient Earth Globe. Created in 2019 by Ian Webster, curator of the Dinosaur Database, Ancient Earth allows you to plug in an address anywhere in the world and then see what that location looked like 20 million to 750 million years ago, giving you a little summary of that time period with each selection. And one of the coolest features is that it retains our modern political boundaries as the topography of the virtual globe changes, so you can still get a good idea of where what you're looking at is or was or never was at the time. Don't think too hard about it. It also tells you what fossils are nearby, helpfully provided by and linked back to the dinosaur database. And if you aren't sure which time period you'd like to jump to, there's a menu on the right with helpful suggestions like the first land plants, the first coral reef, the first hominids, Pangaea, etc. And though it's cool to get an idea of what your home or particular landmarks might have looked like millions of years ago, Webster does give the caveat that model results vary significantly. And even though he chose a model that is widely cited and covers the greatest length of time, quote, we will never be able to prove correctness, end quote. So take it all with a grain of salt, but still it is a very cool way to get a high-level visualization and to remember just how long this little blue-green marble has been around. Well, that is going to be it for me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Monday.